Hey, what's going on? Welcome to the People's Show. First edition after Christmas. Hope your holidays have been fantastic and continue so leading up to the end of 2022. It's Bik Nazar broadcasting with Israel Fair today, coming to you live from the Kintech studio. Kintech Footwear and Orthotics, Canada's favorite orthotics provider, supported by over 1,500 five-star Google reviews. Find your perfect fit at Kintech.net. If you want to be part of the show, as always, 650-650 into the Dunbar Lumber text message inbox, the smart alternative. Visit Dunbar Lumber on Bridge Street in Ladner or Arbutus in Vancouver. Vancouver online at DunbarLumber.com. Izzy, what's going on? Good to be here. This is kind of always a, a wacky week, weird week for people. Yeah. You know, do, between do, holidays. Do so. people even know what day it is? Like, I'm not even trying let's, to win. Let's get weird today. It, it's tough enough during the regular season, too, where it's like game day, off day, practice, and you're just like, what day is it? And the only day, like, I remember Saturdays, hockey night and all that sort of stuff. You can kind of picture a Saturday. Uh, but throw in the week of chaos that is holiday week on yeah, top of it yeah like what day is, is, is it wednesday today it is okay yeah toronto maple leafs also got confused about which day it was <laughs> getting that 100k fine hundy oh disrespected by the c-note <laughs> little frank pentangeli <laughs> reference there for you insulted by the c-note uh well we'll get into that one later i mean they picked up 100k fine uh, today for flying on the wrong day. Uh, but Canucks win last night. W, 6-2 to two over the San Jose Sharks. We'll get into a bunch of things uh, as well. Danny Kelly will join us in about a half hour if you're still trying to figure out your fantasy football finals. Congratulations if you made it. I will help you out in a little bit as well. Thanks, Mick. Uh, Sean, are you, you made one? Yes. Okay, congratulations. Thanks. I made one as well. Yeah. Mind you, I'm in like 11, so I shouldn't make yeah, it. I'm one. one for one. Yeah. Massive. Big move. Uh, we're, we'll talk to Sean Reynolds as well uh, coming up in an hour uh, as get ready for the Canucks playing the Winnipeg Jets on the road. Hopefully the Canucks fly on the right day and uh, don't pick up 100K fine. They're good now. <laughs> yeah. yeah. No. Well, the, there is still like flight rules as well, even on regular season. Uh, yeah, but not this one. Not like this. Yeah. This is very the specific. holiday specific. Yeah. Uh, it's so funny. Uh, f- uh, we'll, we'll talk to uh, Sean Reynolds coming up at the... Uh, next hour, uh, as they get set for a game against the Jets on Thursday, which you will, will of course, hear on Sportsnet 650. Uh, Want to start, though, last night, Bo Horvat continues the goals. He may have just scored again. Uh, 26 goals in 34 games now for number 53. Throwing a bunch of numbers at you. But Bo Horvat and 50 goals. Is it real? Can he do it? What are your thoughts? You can always chime in, 650-650. But let's plot this out here, what it looks like. You know, we were talking about a little bit on the, the, the post-game show last night, me, Sat, iMac, and the numbers are very encouraging to try to get there. I still look at 50. It is just so tough to get to 50. Throw in the idea that he could also be traded at some point, and maybe the role changes and the usage changes. But do you think Bo Horvat gets to 50 this season? It's it, – I don't. He's given himself a really great head yeah. start. And you just look at the shooting percentages, though. And he's he's an above-average shooter in the, in the league. Mm-hmm. And he's at 
almost 25% at all strengths. He gets a little, you know, a little boost from the power play. 24.5 after last night. Yeah. He was at 15.9 last year and 14 and a half the year before. You have to account for scoring being up mm-hmm. across the league, but I don't think it's up 25%. Like he's having one of the most remarkable goals per game stretches we've seen in the past decade. And just to put this in context, because scoring is up, and he's still third as far as goals per game right now this year. That's that's an indicator of what goaltending is like right now. Maybe defense, but also just this offensive explosion right now. Because Connor McDavid and Tage Thompson are ahead of him for goals per game so far this season. And you go through this, you know, 50 is such a difficult number. 40 is a foregone conclusion at this stage. Even if he was traded tomorrow and the usage looks different, I think he's getting to 40 no matter what. And now we're just talking about over-unders here. It's 45. Like, at what point do you take the under? 45 seems fair. So 45 and a half, you're taking the under. Yeah. I, I, I might even need to take you know, 46, 47. We just know that this is a player who's prone to streaks. Mm-hmm. And this has been an extended one, and you can read into what's led to him being at this point. Mm-hmm. Um, there, there are points in his favor. It's not a complete aberration, but there are the other points that look. He's he's a guy that's had hot streaks in the past, never hotter than this. Mm-hmm. But he's tended to be a player that rides the roller coaster a little bit. I feel like last year we had a conversation, and just around the league, about someone like Chris Kreider. And it was like, is this guy really going to score 50? Come on, he's not really going to score 50. And sure enough, Chris Kreider uh, was the net front presence on a power play, scored a bunch of tip-ins last year as well, and got himself to 52. And you look at you know what, the way Bull plays, you know, in front of the net, lots of tip-ins, and then converts on the power play. Nine power play goals on the year. As you mentioned, he's got more uh, at evens yeah. so far this year. In the well, shooting that's the percentage. difference, yeah. right? Like, you, you look here, nine goals on the power play with that uh, just power play shooting percentage, 23.68. That's in line with the last four years. It was 23-2-1, 22-5-8, 23-9-1. Like, he's, he's that kind of finisher on the power play. So, and he's, he's getting tons of shots, right? Like last year he had 56 shots in 70 games. He's at 38 shots in 34 games, right? Like he's, he's getting those on the power play, just on the power play. That's going to be a difference maker. And that's why you look at him and there's a reason that he's an attractive player in the league. Is he, especially for a contending team, you get a weapon like that on the power play. You don't have to rely on him to be, a play driver for you. If you're, mm-hmm. if you're a contending team, you already have the pieces in place to dominate at five on five, or at least to control play at five on five. You drop in a player like him who has that, that ability. We're talking, yeah, the last four seasons, 20 plus percent shooting percentage on the power play. It, it's impressive. So I was looking at this last night after the game, uh, in the past decade, actually a little bit longer, let's say from 2010 and up until last season, including last year. That's a lot of seasons by a lot of players. There's been 23 seasons where a player has basically been on pace for 50 goals. I'm, I'm being a bit more lenient here because we've had uh, lockout shortened seasons. We've had COVID-impacted seasons. We've had a 56-game season because of uh, separated divisions. So I'm trying to be a bit more lenient here. 
but it's 23 seasons done by 12 players. Now you can imagine Ovechkin's populating this quite a bit. So from 2010 to 2022, Ovechkin's on this list seven times. Austin Matthews and Leon Dreisaitl are each three. Steven Samkos makes this twice. And then it's Forsberg last year, Kreider last year, uh, Debrinkat, Pasternak, Zabinijad, Malkin, Crosby, Perry. Since 2010. It's 12 players to do it. So far this season, as far as 50-goal pace, Connor McDavid, Tage Thompson, Bo Horvat, Mika Ranton, Pasternak, Robertson, Leon Dreisaitl. Sorry, not Dreisaitl. Uh, Robertson. It's it's six guys. Dreisaitl must be close. He's very close, yeah. But McDavid's the one who's mm-hmm. scoring and looks like he's going to have his first ever 50-goal season. Yeah. Because he is conspicuously absent from the, the list of players. Dreisaitl was like one it. goal away from basically jumping into this list as well. Yeah, and he could he could score four in his next yeah. game. But but that's the list right now of guys that you look at and say, can they get 50 goals this year? It's those seven guys. I feel like I might be missing a name here too. Uh, but that's that's the group. If if I laid out those seven guys there, how many like how many 50 goal seasons do you think we're going to see this year? I'm very confident in McDavid doing it. Mm-hmm. And I think it's pretty safe to say that at least three more from that group will do it. And I, I've already said I don't think Horvat's going to do it. it. It's it's so bizarre, though, man. Because like, I, I, I know scoring's up. I get that. But 50 is like a rarefied number here. We got a bunch last year. You're telling me we're going to get four more this year? I think scoring's that far up. It's, you just look at the the safe percentage number. It's... It's significant. Like guys that are having nine ten save percentages this year are well above average. Like if you like I see Carter Hart in Philadelphia, he's he's around that number. And in the past you would look at that and say, Oh, that that's okay. And this year that that, that makes him one of the better goalies in the league. So there's there's there gotta be the flip side to that. And it's there's a number of players that are that are gonna reach that milestone. Uh, I, I think you I mean Rantanen uh, is in a position because they've had tons of injuries and he's he's a good player on a on a great team in his own right but getting those opportunities sort of like you know uh, on a basketball team where someone's got to take the shots like mm-hmm. he's he's one of the only healthy guys right now and he's got the talent to do it Robertson's been a revelation like I mean one of the names that's surprising not to be there I guess the team struggled a little bit is Kaprizov mm-hmm. last year he had 47 well yes uh, last night there was eight guys on pace for 50 goals. Now it's actually down to six going into today. So again, it's it's the names: McDavid, Horvat, Thompson, Pasternak, Rantanen, and Robertson. Those are the guys that are on pace to score uh, 50 goals this season. There's some guys that are very close. Uh, I can extend this out even a bit more, just to to, to broaden this list to, to say how many 50 goal scorers we're going to see, and will Bo Horvat be one of them? Again, that list is you can add in. Uh, McDavid, Horvat, Thompson, Pashnek, Ranton, Robertson, Ovechkin, Dreisaitl, and William Nylander. So that's kind of nine guys who are in the range. I still kind of think McDavid makes it. I'll take Pashnek because he's such a natural, pure goal scorer. One of Tate Thompson or Horvat is not going to do it. Maybe both. I might have to shade towards Horvat. He, he might end up at 47. Mm-hmm. But Thompson's couple of less games, 
higher goals per game, and just like the way the goals are coming for Tage Thompson look different as well. A significantly lower shooting percentage. Yes. That's the other thing about Horvat right now. It's like the shooting percentage. Uh, if, if you go through the numbers here of that guy, of that group that we've seen uh, who, who are on pace in the first half of seasons, even if you just go through the first half of seasons over the last decade, the shooting percentage, generally speaking, is, yeah, it's high, but not a lot of them are cresting 22%. And the overall shots per game. What was uh, William Carl William Carlson the, the year, the 40. crazy first year with Vegas? Yeah. Was when he, he scored 40 goals. Mm-hmm. And it was he was in the mid-20s. Yeah, that, that season, which is uh, not such an outlier, he was 23 and a half. Right. That's what. And both shooting above yeah, that right yeah, now. Yeah. And there are a number of players. Like, I, I, I just pulled it up. I mean, McDavid's just slightly below Horvat. Uh, Sidney Crosby's actually ahead of, of Bo Horvat. For the season. Yeah. At five on five. Because you're a big five on five guy. It's the, it's the <laughs> dominant dominant play state. Uh, so, yeah. Does he get 50? I think it's going to be very, very close. I'd still be surprised. And the thing that's going to throw a wrinkle in this is the trade. No, just I mean you just look at the shots. Like I got the, the the leading goal scorers up here. McDavid 31 138 shots. Then this is all strengths. This includes power play. Mm-hmm. Tage Thompson 26 goals 146 shots. Bo Horvat 26 goals 106. Jason Robertson 24 148. Pasternak 24 174. Rantanen 24 125. These guys all have significantly more shots. Like we're yeah. Sim- uh, uh, similar number of games. McDavid's played a couple more games than uh, Horvat. He's got 30 more shots. Uh, of the nine guys we're I t- mentioned we're t- there? We're talking about like five, six shots a game. Yeah. Uh, of the nine guys I mentioned, Bo's actually least in shots per game. Drysaddle's the next closest at 3.28. But, you know, Drysaddle's a bit of a power play beast. He's done 50 goals multiple times, obviously. So th- that little gap, I can say, at least Drysaddle can do it because we've seen it before. There's proof concept. Uh, there's the, the gap between Rantanen and Drysaddle is over half a shot a game. So you're, you're talking about someone launching the puck way more than Horvat does. He's got 20 more shots than him at this stage in the season in one less game as well. Kale McCarr has more shots than Bo Horvat this season. Really? But still, man, fifty goals. Uh, Tyler Toffoli more shots than uh, than Bo Horvat this season. Uh, Tanbeer text again. I understand you're not a big Bo guy. It sounds like you're salty that Bo's having a great year. No, 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 it's not at all. This is like talking about the remarkableness of a fifty goal season right now. That's like that's the thing. Like that's what's at stake here. Fifty goal seasons are very tough to get. Again, twelve guys since 2010. It, and it you just, go to the era before, you go to the 2000s, or especially before the lockout. Yeah. Like it was like if the guy got 40 goals, that was impressive, massive. Kovalchuk and Rick Nash, and Jason Jerome Ginla. It was like Jonathan Chichu. Jonathan Chichu. <laughs> he's yeah. a 50. He's, he's a 50 a, goal guy. 100. percent uh, But yeah, it, it, I'm just interested to see how many more names enter this 50 goal run uh, in the past decade. Here, 12 guys have done it. Tate Thompson could be amongst that, adding to the list. Uh, Will Bo Horvat as well. Connor McDavid's going to add his name to this list. It seems that way. I mean, that was one ahead of the season, given the way offense was trending. That if you were going to add anybody to the list, it seemed mm-hmm. like a decent bet on Connor McDavid. But I, I think it's interesting to look at it from this vantage point. We all because it's easy for us to look at offense being up and hey, goals per game is up and save percentages are down. But I always found it interesting 
to look at baseball where there was a home run spike. But until recently, like until this Aaron Judge season, there weren't individual standout home run seasons compared right. to the like the steroid era. The the floor came up, but the ceiling. But didn't that rise. was the thing. Like all of a sudden, a guy like Kevin Pillar, who is you know uh, a, a decent outfielder, he could hit 15, 20 home runs in a year because that you didn't have guys that hit zero. Mm-hmm. And this is a, a different way to look at it. But okay, offense is up. Well. Who is it? Where is it getting catered to? Are we talking about ten guys around the league that can push for fifty goals? Because I do think that the skill level in the bottom parts of lineups is cons- consistently getting better. Mm-hmm. But I do think that ultimately, it's okay. A guy like Tage Thompson catches fire. All of a sudden, that's a guy that a couple of years ago people are maybe hoping he's a twenty goal scorer. Now he's a fifty goal scorer. That makes that makes a significant difference. And 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 you go down you go down the line. Uh, for for a lot of these younger players, Robertson, people thought he was going to be a good player, but all of a sudden, fifty goals it, it it's a it's a different it's a different plane. I still kind of maintain that the reason we're seeing more explosive offense is defense has crumbled a great degree. You know, when we talk about defenders nowadays, primary primary attribute we're all looking for skating, puck moving ability. So that increases more offensive opportunity as well because you're just getting more qualified, skilled players. It's not even just about the third lines across the league are better. You're just getting better D-men. So you have five more attacking players on the ice. Better five-man units are trying to create offense. But at the same time, has defense slipped a little bit? And that's why we're seeing an explosion as well. Because I think the talent from year to year that grows incrementally, but this this boost we've seen these past two seasons, I think, has more to do with overall team defense than it does with skill getting so much better. Well, I think about certainly in Vancouver, where you, you talk about the need for more depth on defense, and the whole league is always looking at the right side of you know, right right shot defenseman being super valuable and stuff like that. And it does feel like after three or four years of those conversations, we have hit. A crisis point in a way where for those three or four years it was kind of exploratory hey like you every team can use some of these guys we've reached the point where those guys did not magically appear mm-hmm. and with a few exceptions across the league of teams and they're generally the best teams in the league that that have that there there is i think uh, a pretty significant step back in that area because the game is getting faster and to to your point Bick, about Puck moving ability, skating ability, the premium on on that is is never been higher. Uh, six fifty, six fifty. Uh, keep coming with your thoughts. Uh, Bo's getting his goals from tips and in dirty areas up close. It's like a big man having uh, a high shooting percentage. This is sustainable this season. He's not doing this again, though, in my opinion. It's also from Tanbeer coming in. And, yeah, the tip-in percentage from year to year, it, like the only guy that's kind of sustained it is Joe Pavelski. This stuff will spike and it will regress. But over 82, you can certainly do it. Again, that's why I referenced Chris Kreider. Chris Kreider last year popped out of nowhere with a bunch of redirect tipping goals. And suddenly this season, it's like, you know, decent season, but it's not a 52-goal pace uh, so far for Chris Kreider. Uh, this one, uh, time to go back to elementary school and take the math. It's not five or six more shots these guys are averaging. It's one shot more per game. Do we get that one wrong? 
Well, it, it, like I just said, McDavid's got 30 more shots than Horvat in two extra games. That's not one shot right. a game. But even look look at the per 60s. Bo Horvat per 60 averages under nine shots. Let's say he plays 20 minutes a game. Dave Pasternak leads the league at 15 shots per 60. These guys are mm-hmm. significantly outshooting Bo Horvat. Tage Thompson's right there. He's, mm-hmm. he's just under 15. Uh, 650, 650. Keep coming with the thoughts uh, into the Dunbar Lumber text message inbox. Always appreciate it. Uh, but as far as the Canucks, now they're above 500. We'll get into this uh, later on as well. But, you know, what just getting to this stage means, this is the stage I'm actually interested in because we, we've, we've waited so long for this team. They've had multiple opportunities to go above 500, and they followed it up with a bad performance against Washington and Minnesota and Winnipeg, who they again play uh, tomorrow. Now this gets interesting. At the baseline, you want them to always be competing, right? Players and coaches are naturally going to do that. Try for two points. Try to get the W. Much to the chagrin of some fans who are tired of watching this core group and they they want to see change. I still think change is going to come at some stage. But they've put themselves back in a position where they're above 500 at the Christmas break. This is the stretch of games where you're really going to find out, A, what this team is, and also really test the resolve, I would say, of the organization. Because what if there's a scenario, Izzy, where over these next 12 games, let's say, they play Winnipeg, they play Calgary, Islanders, Colorado, Winnipeg, Penguins, Lightning, Panthers, Hurricanes, Lightning, Avalanche and Oilers. Oh, you're not done. Yeah. <laughs> That's a 12-game stretch, okay? 24 that, points. That's brutal. And realistically, because they're only one game above 500, traditionally in a stretch like that, if you were four or five games above 500, you'd say, hey, just go 500. Get 12 points. The, the most brutal part of your schedule, you survive and make up the difference elsewhere. But they have to make up ground and soon because – Mark Schiller is going to be here before you know it. And also, what if a, a, an offer you can't refuse comes as well? How many points do they realistically need over these next 12 games? Because the answer might be 18. Yeah. Because if, if you get to the middle to late January and you get 12, which is still like, if they got half the points, it's still like, okay, that's successful. But the deadline of things might shift. What if an offer comes in in late January and thinking, hey, we're not going to wait till March 3rd. We can do that. So that's why, like, the urgency, if, if you still want playoffs to maximize this stretch, they really need to end up higher than 500 in this stretch here. Yeah. I mean, that's that's the catch-up game you're playing after the start that you have. You, you have no choice. Uh, and a lot of those teams that you mentioned are out of conference. So, as we know, a lot of those games, this may be placed in the, in the Canucks' hands, but those can end up being three-point games and you're not you're not hurting yourself necessarily but like the Canucks need to put themselves in in position to do that and we've seen them put up goals against teams like the Sharks mm-hmm. who aren't very good there there weren't really many teams that that you listed there that are that are Sharks like even some of the flawed teams on that list have 
incredible strengths. And you know, the, the Canucks are going to have to survive that before they get to the Chicago-Seattle-Columbus week at the end of January, and uh, right before the All-Star break. Uh, all right, we'll get into more of it uh, throughout the course of the show. Keep chiming in with your thoughts, 650-650. Uh, we'll talk to Danny Kelly next. If you're in their fantasy football finals, I will help you out uh, on the other side here on the home of the Canucks, Sportsnet 650. Welcome back to the People Show, coming to you live from the Kintech Studio. We'll connect with Danny Kelly in just a moment from the Ringer Fantasy Football Podcast and the Ringer.com as we get set for the fantasy preview on the People Show, brought to you by Clayton Public House pregame to postgame. The Clayton Public House is your home of football. Catch all the action on 15 screens and two giant projectors, the Clayton Pub.com. Let's uh, talk to him now. Danny Kelly joining us. Uh, how are you? I'm doing pretty well, trying to sort through all the different uh, craziness that's happening in the NFL this week. For yeah, sure. We're getting benched. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's the worst time for all this sort of stuff. Before we get to all that, uh, how was Christmas? Uh, it was good. It was really good, other than the fact uh, my sister wasn't able to make the travels out of L.A. because of all the uh, Southwest Airlines things that were like making it, making travel impossible for a lot of people. So we're, we're sort of postponing Christmas, and we're having that tonight. Postponing? Oh, man, that's a power move. That's a that's a strong move. Yeah, yeah. Screw the calendar. We call Santa. Yeah, yeah. We call Santa. Let him know it's up. So yeah. okay. I see you working. I see you working. Uh, all right. Let's get into uh, some of the chaos. Uh, let's start with uh, the Raiders. Maybe the most prominent benching here. Yeah. Derek Carr. Now, I don't know how many people have Derek Carr in their fantasy lineups, but it does impact Darren Waller and Devonte Adams. Mm-hmm. Matt Collins has had a decent season there. Hunter Renfro. It, it just seems like. It, what does Jarrett Stidham do for everyone else? Well, uh, that's a good question. And in addition to the fact, I believe Josh McDaniel said that some vets will be taking a step back. So I don't know exactly what that means. And and maybe we'll find out a little bit more as the week goes on here. But um, I think in terms of Josh Jacobs, in terms of Devontae Adams, like you mentioned, Waller, Matt Collins, uh, I'm just downgrading all those guys at least a little bit just because of the uncertainty of, it just feels like the Raiders are packing it in and deciding not to really finish out the season at full bore. They're just kind of like conceding defeat at this point. Derek, um, with Derek Carr, you know, they're more or less saying that they're just going to move on from him and they don't want him to get hurt before they try to trade him. So yeah, it's a, it's, it's a complex situation. I just, I think you just got to at least downgrade those guys. Another uh, AFC West team in some chaos. Uh, They're not getting rid of their quarterback. Maybe, uh, maybe they would like to, but that's not the, the first part on the agenda. Uh, Nathaniel Hackett gone in Denver. Uh, does that change anything for you on the Broncos? Or uh, are they just sort of dead in the water as, as they looked on Christmas Day? I mean, at this point, like, we're, we're waiting a little bit to find out um, what's going on with Jerry Judy's ankle. Um, but otherwise, like, it, it doesn't change a whole lot in terms of fantasy. Jerry Judy, I still think it's startable. Cortland Sutton, sort of like a fringe flex type guy. Um, and then Russell Wilson, if you're desperate or in a two quarterback league, you can still start him. But 
Um, there are, you know, sometimes we see where a head coach will get fired and, and the team comes out and plays really well. The, the game after mm-hmm. is kind of like, for whatever reason, you know, that maybe the pressure's gone or just something new, like just whatever the reason is, you, we, we see these teams sort of like explode sometimes. So I'm not like counting them out necessarily, at least from a fantasy point of view. I'm kind of just ranking the receivers in the same spot that they've been most of the season. And then, you know, kind of hoping Russell Wilson will break out of his slump here. And, his, and obviously last time that the, the Broncos faced the Chiefs, um, Wilson actually had a pretty good game when it came to uh, to fantasy. So maybe that will maybe that will happen again. We'll see. Hey, last week we saw uh, the Carolina Panthers uh, have a couple of running backs really blow up against Detroit. And I'm looking at the matchup this week. It's Chicago. Um, yeah. Similar scenario. Like, Can they also take advantage of Detroit with uh, Montgomery and Khalil Herbert there? Yeah, I think that's a, a really interesting matchup. I think it's also very potentially very good for Justin Fields, who, you know, he's a big scrambler. They design a lot of the run game around him. They've maybe kind of scaled that back a little bit because of the shoulder injury, but I still think he has the, um, you know, the speed and the explosiveness to rip off a big run and, and potentially get you a touchdown. So um, I definitely would be firing up Montgomery, definitely be firing up Justin Fields, and then hoping, you know, if you need like a desperation flex or if you got an injury, there's a lot of kind of, moving parts this week with teams, you know, shutting down some of their starters and things like that. Um, you know, Khalil Herbert, I think, is another good option, too, because, you know, he's a good player. They, they sort of rotate in the backfield there. And so, yeah, I mean, we saw last week, I believe, both Panthers running backs were over 100 yards at halftime. So, you know, that's a juicy matchup. Speaking of teams that are looking like they're going to shut down starters, the Titans are right at the top of that list, and, and they're in the Thursday nighter against the Cowboys. Uh, if, if Derrick Henry doesn't play, it seems like he's doubtful and that uh, he's going to be joined by eight or nine other prominent players, a, a lot of them on defense, but that will still affect, I <laughs> yeah. guess, the, the game flow. Uh, are there any running backs that, that the Titans have that uh, can fill the gap for someone that, that would have Henry in a potential championship round this week? Um yeah, I, I think, you know, the guy probably to look to here is, is Hassan Haskins, rookie fourth rounder. Um, you know, it, it, this is like a big risk. Obviously, it's championship weekend for a lot of people, and, and a lot of people probably are in the championship because Derrick Henry's been so good this year. But, um, you know, I think that they are going to run the ball a lot. You can kind of bank on that just because of Malik Willis under center. They're just not going to try and pass the ball a ton. He's just too raw, just hasn't really – shown he can do that and so I would expect Haskins it's kind of like the Zach Moss situation with uh with the Colts where you know it's not necessarily my top pick or or whatever I'm not super confident about it but like if you do have a, a need at that flex spot if you lost Derrick Henry and there's nobody else on the waiver wire um Haskins at the very least seems like he's going to get some you know good amount of volume and so um he'd be a guy that I that I would be willing to fire up at the flex but probably not feeling too good about it because I don't know if they're going to score a lot of points I don't know if they're going to get into the red zone obviously you're probably going to want to get a touchdown out of it um but you know in a, in a weird week like this and, and where you, people are just kind of scrambling he's definitely a guy to keep on keep it on your radar as we get closer to tomorrow you mentioned Zach Moss there. Uh, he's getting some touches in in Indianapolis now. You know he, he's he's a fun running back to watch, but it hasn't really broken out. Uh, is he finally starting to get his opportunities now in Indy, which is a weird offense to watch? But he he looks like he's finally getting some usage, which is good for fantasy. Yeah, he you know he's a guy that I actually liked going back to the draft, and it was he kind of got buried in Buffalo. Um, it didn't really seem like he was the type of player that they were looking for in Buffalo. You know, we've seen them trying to get like these like 
satellite backs, these pass catching backs, and that's just kind of like what they're looking for. So Zach Mossing a little bit, you know, out of place in Buffalo. It's nice to see him getting some opportunities here in Indy. Obviously, it comes at the, you know, with Jonathan Taylor getting injured, so that's not great. But um, the problem is, and this is like similar to what I was saying with Haskins, it's like a lot of empty calorie uh, volume for him. Like he had 12 carries for 65 yards. Like that's just not going to really get you that much in the fantasy world. Um, especially when you have Nick Foles coming in and starting. I mean, I'm, I couldn't imagine anything going much worse than what Nick Foles did in his first start last week. He just looked awful. I was actually expecting a little bit more out of him just because he's a you know an experienced veteran, but um, just took a ton of sacks, just looked really lost most of the time, threw three picks. Um, when you have you know an offense that's not really moving the football and not getting into the red zone, uh, it's just going to be difficult for any of these guys to produce in fantasy. So I would say Zach Moss is definitely in, in that mold where you're going to get probably 12 to 12 to 18 carries out of him, but you really need him to score a touchdown if you really if you're going to want to like get actual fantasy production out of it. So um, depending on how you feel about New York's defense, he's he would be again kind of like on that fringe flex option for me. Kenneth Walker gave, I think, a lot of teams a big jolt in the middle of the season, putting up some big numbers. Then he got hurt. The last couple of weeks have been okay but where are you at with mm-hmm. with him where the Seahawks are basically in these must-win games the offense has been a little bit unbalanced the last couple of weeks it seems like there's going to be a heavy emphasis on the run game he's clearly not a hundred percent like what's what's the the read for for Walker with you yeah I mean I'm I'm still firing him up and, and being feeling pretty good about it the Jets defense is is has been good um, but at the same time, you know, I think that the, the team, the overall Seahawks offense is good enough to score points. I still believe in Geno Smith. You know, there's a chance that we get Tyler Lockett back this weekend. It sounds like he was, he would have been a full participant in practice had they actually practiced as sort of like a simulated practice. But, um, it sounds like he may be back this week, which would be obviously a huge, huge bump for the Seahawks offense. And so, um, to me, it, it's a little bit like boomer bust option. It's, you know, obviously he's, He's been stylistically a boomer bust runner. Like there will be times where he gets caught and, and tackled behind line line of scrimmage, or there's times where he rips off like a 35 yard run. Um, I still believe in his talent. I still believe in the Seahawks offense. I think that they will end up scoring some points in this game, and so um, I'd be feeling pretty good about uh, starting Walker in this game, just because you know I think he's just so good, and the, and the Seahawks really kind of have their backs to the wall at this point. So I expect him to come out and play pretty well. Uh, we've talked a lot about rookie wide receivers that emerge in the second half of a season. Uh, there's a pass-catching option from the backfield that's starting to emerge in Buffalo with James Cook. He's a rookie, uh, big week last week. Uh, is this something that's developing and, and keeping an eye on in Buffalo that uh, fantasy owners can trust heading into this final week? Trust is probably too strong of a word, but reasonably excited about, I guess, maybe be like a better way of putting it because I think he's had – now three or four straight games where he's getting about 40% of the carries or sorry, 40% of the snaps. And so um, it it was a three man rotation before. Now it's more of like a two man rotation with him and Singletary, obviously Naheem Hines gets in every once in a while, but um, I think, you know, they're definitely kind of starting to lean on him more. He, he gives them a different look than Singletary. Singletary is kind of a, he's slow, but he's a good tackle breaker. He's a little more physical. Whereas James Cook is, is more of a slasher. He has a little bit more explosiveness. He's a good pass catcher. So I think they are trying to get him used more and more as the season goes on, get him out there and get him some experience and, and give him a chance to have those explosive plays. So I'm actually starting him in a couple of leagues. 
Um, you know, he's not necessarily like a top 24 guy, but as a flex option um, in an offense like this, like there's a chance he's going to find the end zone. There's a chance he's going to get a handful of targets in addition to some runs. And so um, I'm actually feeling pretty good about him going on just because, you know, the usage has been there and the, and the snaps have been there to have, you know, a little bit of confidence going into this weekend. Uh, two wide receivers I want to ask you about. We'll, we'll get you out on this. Um, Trenton Irwin and Rashid Shahid. Uh, what can you tell us about these guys? Because they, they they've scored touchdowns and they've had big weeks, uh, yeah. not just last week, uh, but they've shown up a bunch. Uh, what can you tell us about the Bengals and Saints wide receivers here? Well, I I think with Rashid Shaheed, he's actually been more interesting to me just because um, he has now sort of worked his way into the starting rotation with the Saints. Obviously, Olave's been hurt um, over the last couple of weeks, but. Um, I still think it's kind of like going to be, you know, Olave, Shahid, and then Juwan Johnson. I, I, I believe they already put Jarvis Landry on the injured reserve, but he's been banged up regardless. And so he's kind of worked his way as, into being a starter on this team. So I would be more interested in Shahid just based on the fact he's going to be out there, probably running more routes, um, having more opportunities. I, you know, I think the Irwin thing is he's kind of a um, – an option for them if they have injuries, if Tyler Boyd or T Higgins goes out, like he'll get an opportunity to go in. Um, but as of, as it stands right now, he's like the fourth or fifth option in that offense behind Jamar Chase, T Higgins, Tyler Boyd, and then Mixon. I mean, I wouldn't feel super confident starting him, especially in a championship weekend. I mean, there's always the off chance that he'll go off and catch a couple of touchdowns, but um, I don't think he's going to be like a big part of that offense or a big part of like the game plan. It's just kind of been, um, you know, here or there, he'll catch a touchdown. But otherwise, it's been pretty hit or miss. And so um, I'd feel better about Shahid. Irwin is definitely flash, but I w- probably would not be banking on him in championship weekend. Uh, actually, I do have one more question for you. Uh, I, yeah. I I was the uh, victim of this uh, this week in, in fantasy semifinals, uh, but I want you, I wanted to get your take on it, and maybe you have a rant about it. Can we do away with fantasy defenses? <laughs> I yeah. it's like te- oh, yeah. I, I don't understand what's going on here. Like I, I lost because the Chargers put up twenty points, and you look around and like th- there are some bad teams who had bad defensive performances that put up big points for fantasy. Like like what is the right thing that we should be doing with fantasy <laughs> defense right now? Uh, I mean, I personally am one hundred percent in favor of getting rid of kickers and defense mm-hmm. in fantasy. I just think there, it, for 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 starters, like both kickers and defenses, they're when they have big games, it's much more random. It's not something that you can typically like project with any certainty. You know, we're talking about defenses scoring a defensive touchdown, having an interception. These are rare occurrences typically in the NFL, especially pick sixes. And so, you know, I, to me, it's like just luck of the draw. Like I, I don't really like that. I'd rather have, um, you know, the strategy that goes around with like, you know, projecting snap counts, projecting target rates projecting carries, all that stuff like that you can actually kind of bank on versus like, oh, I guess I'll just start whoever against whoever, and then hopefully they'll score a lot of points. Like I, To me, that's just like not part of the game that I like to play. So um, I would way, way rather be in a league, and I'm in a lot of leagues that just have an extra flex option um, instead of a defensive kicker. So uh, I'm 100% with you. I just don't, you know, I, don't, I just don't really, it, it's just so different than the rest of like the strategy around the game. There's the official take. So if you're listening uh, and you want to improve your, <laughs> your your league next year, get rid of defense. Add a flex. Yeah. yeah. Just, Way more fun. Just add more offense. That's the uh, the, the, the tried and tested uh, rule for every league. Just just add more offense Absolutely. and we'll get more viewers for it. Uh, DK, <laughs> hey, man, we appreciate it as always uh, all season long. Uh, thanks so much and uh, enjoy the new year. All right.
good luck in the championship weekend. Absolutely. Thanks, Danny, Danny Kelly from the Ringer Fantasy Football Podcast and theringer.com. Again, if you got more questions for him, uh, we see some in the inbox here. We try to hit a couple uh, with some names. But uh, the Ringer Fantasy Football at gmail.com. You can always give him a shout. Again, always appreciate DK throughout the course of the NFL season. Uh, it is the People Show, Bick Nazar and Israel Fair. Or, or I should call you uh, Dalton. Dalton. <laughs> uh, so coming into this, the, the, the show today, the, into the station, uh, I met I met Izzy at a – he was picking up some food. Yeah. And uh, – Waiting in line, and then they they shout out Dalton and Izzy goes to pick up the food. I was like, "What's going on here? You you use an alias when you pick up food? I do. Is is this a routine? It, like, is this the bit now? Well, I I specifically picked Dalton for you. Yes, it's a it's an inside joke about a movie that we like. Yeah. Um, but I when I give my given name Israel, uh, it doesn't matter where uh, it's. The, the people behind the counter generally short circuit. Mm-hmm. They don't know how to spell it. They have lots of questions. So I usually go with my middle name, which is James. It's just easier. But I saw this. I was like, oh, I'm going to use this all the time now. I'm just, yeah, there's no like proof, you know. No. You can give whatever name you want. You're not giving your ID at all. You just say whatever. So I, I'm going to start, start doing this. I thought I started laughing You've so hard. You've had some issues with your name. Yeah, like in even today. Past. Like my, my drink order was P-I-K instead of B-I-K. Yeah. And... Any number of typos. Yeah. I should always give my name when I accept the typos. But now I'm thinking, oh, I'm just going to give, like, movie characters. Sat. Oh. Yeah. Or, or that, <laughs> yeah. Oh, shoot. I want to deal with all the uh, acclaim that comes with that. Can you imagine, like, picking up my Starbucks order and be like, yeah, Sat Shaw. What? 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 Rolls what? off the what? tongue. You look so different in person. <laughs> <laughs> what happened to the beard and the and the great hair? No. It's all gone. It's like, yeah, you know, just. It's a wig. Yeah, it's a wig. <laughs> But big man, power move. I'm about efficiency. Yeah, it, I am losing time trying to explain to someone behind. The, I I I take no offense. No, of to them not. not knowing how to spell my name, not understanding it, not offended at all. Yeah, I just want my food, so I go with a name that's easier to get my food. But now I'm just like thinking of like movie characters, and I just want to start doing this every time. I'm just being like, it's fun. Veto. <laughs> You really look like a veto, yeah. <laughs> I don't know, big Godfather guy, yeah, or uh, I don't know, Johnny Fontaine, yeah, <laughs> or, or Johnny Fontaine, yeah, <laughs> Jack Waltz, just start Tom Hagen, start coming up and, and minor Matt texting in the dude, just pull a Lebowski, be like, yeah, it's 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 for the dude. Why not? Man. And then you make them type that in. I don't know about that one. The See, dude? Seeing it on the screen, that'd be a lot of fun. Yeah. Well, I'll do to Reno if you're not into the whole <laughs> brevity thing. Yeah, man. You start doing this now. Huge trend now across uh, the lower mainland is people uh, using aliases to pick up and just fast food orders that are coming in with like, Andy Dufresne? What's going on here? <laughs> Shawshank? Uh, six fifty, six fifty. Uh, come on with your thoughts, Minor Matt. Uh, how many seasons until Mister Unlimited is banished from riding with the Broncos? Well, he's definitely going to play the next two seasons. Yeah, the, the way the contract it's is too set much up, money. Yeah, we were talking about Russell Wilson there with Danny Kelly. It's it's going to be impossible for them to get out of it unless they just want to say, you know what, next season doesn't even matter, and let's just bite the bullet. But like the cap charge is so ridiculous. I'm not even sure if they're going to be able to field a team 
uh, if they take on like a hundred million dollar cap charge. Is that the next press conference that we're all awaiting? The new coach of the Broncos and what he's going to say about Russell Wilson. So, what would have been the last big press conference that that like kind of shook the sports world? Maybe Adam Gaze. Oh man, like that one where he's just the like Jets, yeah. yeah, where he's looking all over the place. Was that before or after Dan Campbell talking about? That uh, would have been before. That would have been before. Yeah, the kneecaps one was a big one. But I just mean we like we know yeah. that this is coming. At and some there point, is that's this a higher awkward coach. situation yeah. where, like, I mean, we talk about the Canucks all the time, and it's like, well, okay, like we knew that the Horvat and Miller contracts were coming up when Rutherford and Alvin come in. They're going to face these questions that the prior regime would have faced. The Boudreaux thing. Yeah, this is on another level, where. Someone who is currently outside the organization, or at least we think they could hire Higher someone internally. Yeah. It seems unlikely. Someone who's outside is going to have to come in. I am so curious what the tact is going to be. Because like you said, it's it's basically an anchor contract for two years if they want to get rid of it. Because it's, it, it's not even their guy, right? It's they brought in an external QB who they've wanted to make their guy. Paired him with a coach, and now the coach is gone. So even before they, it was, the, the it whole was the, rumor was that they got Hackett because of their Rogers. Rogers. Yes. So then you have to pair quarterback and coach together, and it's very much like the QB had the power. Yeah. And now this scenario is the coach is going to come in. Are you doubling down on Russell Wilson? Is he going to have to sign off on the coach and say, "Yeah, I want this guy as well"? I could see a scenario where they are already looking at twenty twenty five. And you just say, this is the coach we want for the next five years. This is no longer about making this marriage work between coach and QB. If they if it works, great, we solved the problem. But this is very much about what we are in 2025. You're talking about an ownership group that's just come in that has unlimited funds by most accounts. The Walton family. And yes, there's the salary cap that you know limits what yeah. they can do on the field, uh, but that's not... Like they seem like it's a it's a long term project because it's it's you know, ownership and there's been some some tumult there since the teams that the Peyton Manning teams that were contenders mm-hmm. and they've had some seasons where the defenses have the, the the defense has been pretty good this season included um, but like I, I I'm just fascinated by what that you know it's going to be the first or the second question at mm-hmm. the press conference. What, what's first question what's is your like, read of Russell Wilson? Hey, congratulations! Is this your dream? It's like, oh, I can't wait to be part of this organization. Second question is, what are you doing with Russell Wilson? And like, is it going to be a soft answer? Yeah, because we know throughout the years, Pete Carroll was always pretty protective of Russell mm-hmm. Wilson. And I was reading uh, reports out of Denver that people, you know, outside of maybe the first game against the Seahawks, where there was the incredible miscommunication over the the, the last play and, and ultimately kicking the field goal that Hackett sort of threw Wilson under the bus. It seems like for the most part this season, he's been, I think, a lot like his uh, sideline persona, pretty milk toast about <laughs> what what his expectations were for Wilson. It's not like he he crushed him. So if there's a if a new coach comes in. With an ownership group that clearly wants to reestablish the Broncos as something mm-hmm. of a, of an NFL power, you know, for for years they were, you know, not not the Patriots and maybe not the Steelers, but a very consistent playoff team. The Super Bowls with Elway get back to the Super Bowls, yeah. but even the two thousands, even like Jake Plummer and Jay Cutler were their quarterbacks. They they were good teams. They'd make the AFC Championship game. They want to get back there. Um, they're they're not in a position to tiptoe around this issue. They've been very relevant for 25 I years. Guess, yeah, 
right? At least, right? I mean, the Elway, Elway era um, through, yeah, you know, some different quarterbacks, but a lot of them successful, even, even the guy, Tim Tebow, right? Yeah. Like they, they, they've won a lot of games and, and then they've actually capitalized on, you know, on Super Bowls too. Three championships in 25 years. Yeah. A lot of teams would sign up for that and they are facing a very uh, difficult future here coming up and what they're going to have to do with their head coach. Uh, I'll read this last one. Best alias for food pickup. Kaiser Sose. That's a strong one. Good submission. 650, 650. Uh, Keep coming in with your thoughts. Sean Reynolds will join us on the other side talking Winnipeg Jets. So we get ready for Canucks and Jets tomorrow here on the home of the Canucks, Sportsnet 650. Welcome back to Hour 2 of The People's Show. Coming to you live from the Kintech studio, Kintech Footwear and Orthotics, Canada's favorite orthotics provider, supported by over 1,500 five-star Google reviews. Find your perfect fit at Kintech.net. We'll connect with Sean Reynolds. Uh, talk Winnipeg Jets in just a moment here. Winnipeg Jets, uh, kind of an interesting history for them, uh, coming back, obviously, in Winnipeg, and, and they were... So popular because they had so many interesting players. They've had some oh, – obviously, just a lot of people wanted to support them just because they're back in Winnipeg. They were every Canadian second favorite team. Yeah, and then they actually had some success going to conference finals. And then maybe it's dissipated a little bit uh, through some of the latter years of Paul Maurice and they don't have success and they miss the playoffs. And yet here they are again. Rick Bonus comes in and they're winning games again. Kyle Connors emerged. Uh, Mark Scheifele's have another strong season. Pierre-Luc Dubois looks like he's taking a step. And they've done this with some injuries as well. Tons of injuries, yeah. Which e- is, Ehlers has been out for most of the season. Which has been remarkable. And, and here they are uh, amongst the best in the NHL uh, and second in the Central Division. It's been pretty amazing to watch them. Yeah, and Connor Hellebuck's having the Vezina-type seasons mm-hmm. that we, we've seen him have in the past. And uh, it's it's been interesting. A guy, obviously, that Canucks fans are pretty familiar with, and Rick Bonus getting a chance there after leaving Dallas and hit the hit the ground running, really, uh, and seems like got buy in from a lot of those those names that that you mentioned yeah. to, to to turn things around and tighten up some of the areas. I don't think anyone ever thought that all those guys that you meant like the talent was always there. Yeah, it was okay. Well, what needs to happen here? Paul Maurice was there for a long time, and like you said, built that program up to a place where they were competing and making playoff runs and sometimes sometimes you need to change it seems like they got it well let's talk about uh, what's working well there uh, in winnipeg with uh, sean reynolds who joins us now you read his stuff uh, sportsnet you see him on tv as well sportsnet reporter sean how are you i'm doing great how are you guys uh we're doing fantastic uh, at sn sean reynolds uh if you aren't already following him on twitter uh so this season for winnipeg uh how 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 much of the vibes just changed uh, across the city uh with the coaching change and just the way the team is having success right now well i think a lot of people came into this year not expecting a lot from the winnipeg jets uh so the vibe is i mean the, the, the shock has worn off i think for a long time now um, you guys were talking about them sitting second in the central. It's not long ago they were challenging for the best winning percentage in the Western Conference. I mean, you know, the Jets fans were back for a while claiming, you know, that the Jets are maybe Canada's best team. That's kind of softened the last little bit with uh, Toronto keeps climbing and the Jets have hit a bit of a stumbling block here as injuries have caught up with them. But 
I think the vibe, the most important vibe is in the dressing room. This was a group that, you know, was clearly craving, you know, you'll hear, you'll hear teachers talk about kids craving discipline. This was a team that was craving a little bit of discipline and structure in its game. And that's what Rick bonus has provided. He's put a situation in here where this team now, for the most part, when it's had success this year has done so by playing a defense first game, uh, the type of game where, and you guys will have seen this in the last game that they played the Vancouver Canucks. The goal to, is to go out and kind of steal the confidence away from the other team. And I think the Jets really did that against the Canucks the last time that they played them. That's how they've been having success. You talked about all the offensive players on this team and the, the capabilities that they've had. They really have bought into the vibe of being a tough team to play against first and then building their offense off that. Whereas in the other years, I think the Jets have been more of a team that has tried to get by on their skill uh, and the star power that they have without playing that defensive element. And it's really brought them the success that they've had this year. You mentioned, Sean, that the, there was maybe lower expectations for the Jets this season for, for a number of reasons. How much of that do you think was the job that people thought Bonus had in front of him to get that dressing room on the same page? It seems like from day one, he's been super honest with every, every guy in the room, uh, been really honest with the reporters and the fan base about what he expects. And, and it seems like it, it, there was not much of a transition period, that there, that buy-in from that group happened pretty immediately. Yeah, it, it happened immediately because it happened starting in the summertime. I mean, Josh Morrissey, who's gone from being, we all knew, always knew he was a great defenseman, but now to a guy who's challenging for the Norris Trophy this season. Uh, he tells this story about the first phone call he got from Rick Bonus. Rick Bonus called him up and said, so just so you know, the way I view you, when I was with the Dallas Stars, we'd come rolling into town and we had to build our game plan around shutting you down because that's how much respect we have for you. And as good as you've been, I think I can make you way better than you are right now. We can do that together. And I don't know what kind of goals you have for yourself, but I'm telling you right now, I expect to see you in the top 10 of the voting for the Norris Trophy. Josh Morrissey said he got off that phone call and was just like ready to run through a wall like he looked around and was like okay what can I do to work out to get better here right now Rick Bonus went and had a phone call like that with every player on this team so by the time they came to camp the the buy-in they were just tell us what to do and we're buying in because you you look like you've bought into us and our potential so they bought in right back uh, and you guys will have been through that, having had Rick Bonus there in Vancouver. He's a straight talker. He's not afraid to tell you what you're not doing right. And one of the things I like about that is it's a very stark contrast to Paul Maurice, who never liked to introduce a negative. So there would be times the Jets would go out and lay an egg. And Paul Maurice would be trying to tell you that you didn't just see what you saw. And Rick Bonus <laughs> comes out and tells you exactly what you just saw and that it's unacceptable but it's okay for him to do that because he shows the confidence that it's unacceptable what we did, but we're going to get better. We're going to fix that. And I think what happened a lot in the Paul Maurice era is they hid a lot from the skeleton in the closet. Rick Bonus grabs the skeleton by the throat, yanks it out of the closet, shows everybody what it is, what it is and tells you how you're going to beat it. So is that really all it is? Then look, I'm not saying that's not an impressive job, but like we we saw like this team struggled defensively previous years, and now it's Morrissey and it's Demello and it's uh, Neil Pionk and you know Nate Schmidt when he's been healthy. The, the the defense just looks so much better. And is is that a bonus thing? Is it also goaltending? Connor Hellebuck looks good. Like 
what does this come down to where, where this defense looks completely revamped, almost like an Islanders flip over uh, where, where when, oh, when yeah. Trotz came in? Yeah, it, it, it's, a, it's a coaching thing, no doubt, because Connor Hellebuck, you're right uh, to say that he's in Vesna form and, and should be, uh, is, it looks like he's heading towards being one of the finalists for that trophy, but he's been doing this for years, uh, and he's had to do it for years. As, as the Winnipeg Jets of the past years, as bad as they were last year, it would have been a lot worse if Connor Hellebuck still wasn't stealing games. And all those years before that, it kind of I likened it a little bit to the Carey Price in the Montreal years. Like there was a lot of problems with that Montreal team that Carey Price hid for years because he was so good as the last line of defense. And it's been the same thing with Connor Hellebuck. But I'll say this. One of the things, and, and I, you know, I, when I talk like this, I don't want it to sound like uh, Paul Maurice didn't do things for this team. The reason that so many of these guys are as dangerous as they are, like Kyle Connor became everything they could have hoped he could have become. Blake Wheeler, before he met Paul Maurice, uh, was not anywhere near the player he is. He was really able to bring out the individual skill of each of those players and turn them into the players they are today. But over the last number of years, you'd always find that each Winnipeg Jet player seemed to be having a career year, the best year of their career, and yet it was just a bunch of individuals going out and having success, and it was never kind of equating to team success. That's what Rick Bonus has come in here and done. He's made the Winnipeg Jets a team first and convinced them that playing defense and a suffocating style of defense is actually going to lead to offense. It's going to be harder to do, but it will lead to offense because you're going to turn over more pucks, you're going to have more possession, and then you're just going to let the skill take over. And to me, the answer to your question is a 100% Rick bonus. This team is bought into being a defense-first team. Like I said, they were one of the best in the league, top three in the league, before all these injuries hit. But when the Winnipeg Jets have success, they can have a night where their big guns aren't shooting, they're not firing, they're not getting the goals that they got in the past, but they've been that team that is always in the game and always has the potential to win a game because their defensive structure puts them in a position that they're always in these one-goal games. And on most nights, if you're going to bet on a team to get that breakthrough, that one or two goals with your skill, the Jets are usually that team that gets that. Now, I referenced the Islanders. Now, when they made that flip, it, it kind of looked very boring. Now, hey, look, winning is yeah. fun. When you watch the, the Jets play, and, you know, I watch, I really enjoy watching Kyle Connor play, and obviously Ehlers has been hurt, but is it boring to watch the Jets, or are they having fun? Okay, so it started out, and it started out looking like it was going to be a little bit boring, but that was the entire thing is what we, we had thought. And, and here's the important part is the Jets players started out winning games with good defense, and they weren't really scoring. Like, if you remember, Kyle Connor mm-hmm. had a slow start out of the gate. So, But the Jets were bought into the idea of winning. So they were all in saying, listen, if we score less, we don't care. We just want to win. We're sick of losing. We missed the playoffs last year. We don't want that anymore. But what Rick Bonus had said the entire time was, listen, I know it looks like this. They're getting to learn this, so they're, they're thinking defense first. But once the system locks in and they know how to play it, then their offensive juices are just going to naturally take over and they're going to start capitalizing on the more offensive more hold on to it more often. And that's what we started to see. Kyle Connor went from having a slow start to being a point-per-game player again. Josh Morrissey is just absolutely shooting the lights out and has been since the beginning because he's been given the green light by his coach to be aggressive and take the puck away, not wait for the other team to turn it over. Mark Shifley is still that guy who's looking like he's going to be a point-per-game player. And Pierre-Luc Dubois is easily 
having the best year of his career. And before he got injured, a guy like Blake Wheeler is turning back the clock and putting up more points than he has in the past. So it started out looking like it was going to be boring, but I think that you're right to reference that New York Islanders team because you're right. The Islanders were one of the worst defensive teams in the NHL, and they flipped in one season to being the best. But it never really came with that fun offensive style of game. The Jets had hit that in November and were scoring goals in bunches. Again, they've hit a terrible injury stretch here. This is a good time for the Canucks to play them because they've lost three straight, and I think they've only won. I think they've lost six of their last nine. So they're in the middle of it here because they've got so many guys out of the lineup. But when they had it going on in their full lineup going, this team had really figured out how to suffocate the opposition and still put in the circus goals that they're capable of scoring. So through this pretty impressive first three months of the season, how, how have the fans changed their expectations for this team? Because there still are some sort of shorter-term questions. You mentioned Dubois. He's an RFA again in the uh, offseason. Shifley, Wheeler, Hellebuck's contracts are up. Pretty soon, it's not like they're locked in long-term. The The whole bonus experiment does seem he's an, he's an older man at this point. He's obviously all in with this team right now, but how far are people projecting him to be the coach? Uh, are fans kind of seeing this as um, found money in a sense that this team with this group that they're familiar with has found success and, and made it work and, and, and they're not projecting much further than that or is there still some trepidation about okay they they're, they're playing well right now but some big decisions are still in the future listen I don't know if anyone has ever gone and like slept at their grandparents or something and there's that old grandfather clock that ticks so loud it keeps you awake that's what the clock sounds like in Winnipeg the way it's ticking because of all the stuff happening here and what's made it worse is if you go back guys to 2018 the Winnipeg Jets looked like they were assuming the mantle of the Kings in the NHL and then everything has kind of fallen apart since then and I think what we're seeing here and what a lot of people are taking away from this is that the Rick bonus, the way he has them playing, that there's been an open window that the Jets haven't been taking advantage of for a long time here. So because of exactly what you're talking about, Pierre-Luc Dubois is under team control for only one more year after this. His contract, if he were to do a one-year deal or arbitrate his way to a one-year deal next year, would expire at the same time as Blake Wheeler's, at the same time as Connor Hellebuck's, and at the same time as Mark Shifley. So the Jets have a very definitive two-year window here right now with this group that they've believed in for a long time but have kind of wasted this window so you're right it's there's this feeling a little bit of a now or never situation here uh because the jets uh who knows what's going to happen in the next two years now maybe kevin shovel can pull off some magic like he's done in the past he's got guys like i mean Connor Hellebuck is basically at a 35% discount. Mark Shifley has been one of the best deals in the league for a long time. Kyle Connor is a 40-goal scorer, 91 points, and they got him locked down at $7 million for years. The Jets have done a phenomenal job in a market that players are supposed to not want to play in. They've done a phenomenal job getting players to not only stick around but take long-term deals at, at, at a discount rate. So I'm not putting it out of the realm that – that Kevin Sheveldayoff is able to pull off some magic. But as it stands right now, two years, I guess a year and a half now, is the time that's on the clock. The Jets have to get things done. I think that's the way that, uh, the, way that the fans are approaching this. This is a now or never situation, and maybe even this year uh, more so than, than thinking that you have a year and a half, because if Pierre Dubois makes it clear that he's not going to stick around long-term, maybe they have to move on him, and you probably only get futures for him, which means the team gets worse next year and you start having to 
maybe explore the idea of moving a Connor Hellebuck while you still can, moving a Mark Shifley while you still can. So uh, the way I look at this, this is going to be Kevin Sheveldayoff's most important trade deadline ever because this could very well be the last king at the, kick at the can with a group that looked like it was going to do very special things back in 2018 and has really underperformed since. This is the last shot to get this group to where Kevin Shevel Dayoff and a lot of the people in Winnipeg thought it could have been this whole time. I did want to ask uh, about Dubois. We're, we're talking to Sean Reynolds, uh, Sportsnet's Jets reporter. Um, what has this start of the season changed in, in regards to what could the future could look like? Because he's having a fantastic year as well, 38 points in 35 games. Honestly, it's not so dissimilar to the conversation we have in this city about Paul Horvat. But there's a, Horvat, yeah. yeah. But, but, but there's a restricted free agent element to it rather than an unrestricted free agent and a bit of a younger player and came with a right. bit of a higher acclaim, you know, being a third overall draft pick. Um, right. the, the, the success that the Jets are having, how does that change the picture of what the long-term future could be for Dubois now? Well, I mean, this is just my opinion. I don't think it changes at all. I think Pierre Luc Dubois uh, is, is on a, a, a has charted a course out of town, and I think that's the way it's going to go. And to be quite honest, with all these players that the Jets would, you know, in a dream scenario, if they could get guys to stick around, you're going to start with Connor Hellebuck first and lock him down. Uh, and then, you know, Mark Shifley is the first ever draft pick of this Winnipeg Jets team after they came from Atlanta. So maybe he's the guy uh, that, that you go with in that direction, especially because he'll be 31 and maybe the cheaper to, to, to lock down. But Pierre-Luc Dubois, in the situation he's put himself in here, is now, you know, he's never been a point-per-game player before. Pierre-Luc Dubois is a wagon. That's what the kids say these days, right? I hope I'm using that <laughs> properly. But th- th- this guy is... When he gets going, he's a big, massively strong guy. He's got speed. His problem before this in years past has been that he'll show flashes of being a really great player, and I think he usually ends up being about a 60-point player in, in 80 games played. But he'll go to sleep for stretches at a time, and you'll be like, come on, wake up, do something kind of thing, right? That hasn't happened this year. He's shooting the lights out. And, and never mind the fact that you've got you know that big, strong center that every team covets. But on top of that, he's got this nasty edge to him, kind of a Ken Linsman kind of you know rat kind of uh, uh, element to his game. And I say that in, in the most glowing of terms, like he pisses guys off on the other team. Guys can't stand playing against him. He draws penalties like crazy. At one point late in the season last year, he was leading the league in both penalties drawn and penalties taken. So that should give you an idea of the kind of game he plays. When you add that element to a guy who's that big, strong centerman who drives play and he's a point-per-game guy, like this is a guy who could command an insane amount of money on the open market. So the, the way that he's handled this situation kind of bet on himself and I don't necessarily think he's betting on himself I think he's kind of running out the clock on his contract uh should he look at the Jets and think this is a good fit maybe I want to stick around here for sure he should because his dad coaches uh, with the Manitoba Moose and one of the reasons he's as successful as he is is because he gets to pass the puck to Kyle Connor and Mm -hmm. that is a luxury that a lot of players don't have and I would think as soon as if Pierre-Luc Dubois decided to go elsewhere, unless he's landing on a team with that same kind of player, you're going to see his numbers go down. His situation is great here in Winnipeg. 
I just think from what we've heard in the past, there's too much smoke to not think that there's fire and, and the potential for him to want to get back to Montreal. So should he think about sticking around? I, I, I most definitely think he should, but I don't think that means that he's going to. Uh, just really quickly, then uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna let you be Kevin Shovel Day off for a moment here, and and and, uh-huh. and it's March third. Uh, what position and and what are you acquiring in the market uh, as the Jets uh, trend to be buyers? Okay, well, I mean it, it's tricky, and I, I I I haven't fully crunched the numbers. I, I think they've got to go for a big swing. I think they've got to get the kind of player. Who, who could potentially be almost your best player on a lineup that is already ridiculous. Um, I know that it doesn't look that way in Chicago, the way that they're playing right now. Uh, a player like Jonathan Taze, I've seen him in years past, and you'll see flashes of it here and now. Uh, Jonathan Taze still has the potential on nights, and he's coming to Winnipeg and done that, where as, as, many, as many people think his best years are behind him, I've seen too many nights where he walks into Winnipeg on a depleted Chicago team and is clearly the best player on the ice. A guy like that, I think, is, is a phenomenal player for them to try and target if they can make it work financially. Uh, a lot of people want Bo Horvat. I know the people in Vancouver aren't going to be wanting to hear that. But if the Jets can get in a situation where they've got Mark Shifley centering one line, Pierre Dubois centering another line, and a player like Taves or maybe Timo Meyer or Bo Horvat, this suddenly becomes a team that is so deep and strong down the middle that they're going to be really, really tough to contend with because those three players down the middle, never mind what Josh Morrissey is doing on the back end, never mind what Nick Ehlers is able to bring you or Kyle Connor, who may just be the Jets' best offensive player, or Blake Wheeler, who's resurrected himself. If you've got three centers that have the potential to be the best player on the ice every given night, that's a good recipe for success in the playoffs, if you ask me. Uh, Sean Reynolds, at SN Sean Reynolds on Twitter, uh, Sportsnet's Jets report, and also uh, Kenny and Rennie postgame show, so make sure you check them out uh, with Ken Weeb as well. Sean, this was great. We'll talk soon. Anytime, guys. Thanks. Thanks, Sean. Sean Reynolds uh, for the Winnipeg Jets, who are a lot of fun to watch. Uh, and, and that's why I want to have that whole conversation of how it's flipped for them, right? And Kyle Connor is such an enjoyable watch, just speed demon who can score goals. Obviously, we've seen it here in Vancouver uh, when, when the Jets have come to town and he's able to score goals. But for a team that looked hapless defensively a year ago to where they are now, it, it, it's just the thing of like you can bet on talent if you make it work better for you. And I know there's a lot of people listening to a lot of things Sean said. It's like, hey, in years past, players playing offense and playing an individual game, and Rick Bonus has got them going for a team game. And I imagine a lot of people saying here, well, look at the offense the Canucks are creating this year. Is that something that can happen here mm-hmm. with a different coach when that comes to a resolution and they become more defensive? I would also say the investments they've made on defense are way more functional in Winnipeg than they are here in Vancouver. I've always been a big Dylan DeMello yeah. fan. Always liked Josh Morrissey. I didn't foresee this level of offensive production, but solid player. Neil Pionk's a solid player that they got in that Truba trade. Mm-hmm. Brendan Dillon, obviously they've traded for Nate Schmidt, but they've got the investment on defense as far as talent goes, right? Now it's just the the overall picture of their team game fits a lot better. Yeah, it's interesting. They they kind of did the thing where the Canucks thought they were doing when they acquired Nate Schmidt. Mm-hmm. Right? Oh, he's going to fix everything. And they did that last year and they got Nate Schmidt and Brenda Dillon, local product. And it was more than just having established veteran players. Mm-hmm. We've seen that with the Canucks. 
And for a while there, Winnipeg was the reason the people thought Winnipeg is going to be, you know, Sean said it, the next Kings is that they had incredible depth on the fence. Mm -hmm. Because you talk about Truba, who they traded, you talk about Bufflin, who retired. They have Morrissey, who is a young player. Myers was Myers, also, yeah. Uh, another, Tucker Pullman, mm-hmm. who is yeah. not necessarily a difference maker for them, but was part of their depth. And they kind of had to rebuild that on the fly a little bit. I know that when they lost Bufflin, that was a, a huge, Massive. huge loss. It took Morrissey time, but when you make the Canucks comparison, I mean, Quinn Hughes, Josh Morrissey, I think a lot of people are going to take Quinn Hughes over mm-hmm. Morrissey. And that, Morrissey's having an incredible season. That's not to take away from that. And then you go down the, the line. Just put of, in context, if people don't know, he's got 40 points in 35 yeah, he's, games. He's, he, if it weren't for Eric Carlson and the season that he's having, and like the Jets are competitive, the Sharks are not. Yeah. And Carlson's putting up crazy video game numbers for San Jose. But it takes a little bit more than, than that. And like Pionk was really good for them the last couple of years. He's had a little bit of a down year, but it's key a guy like DeMello, who's playing with Morrissey for the most part. And Honestly, it, 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 stylistically... That was a deadline acquisition a while, yeah. a few years back. Yeah, from Ottawa. But stylistically, it's not the same, but he kind of has the impact that Luke Shen has with Quinn Hughes. Is he's, he's not necessarily... He's probably got more... He definitely has more puck-moving talent mm-hmm. and things like that than Shen does, but he's a guy that you can play in your top four and play with your best guy and still get really strong results. And, and I'm with you. Demel is one of the more underrated players in the league. Yeah. He, he never gets talked about. That was the 1920 season, the, the COVID shortened season where he got moved to Winnipeg. And I was kind of thinking like, Hey, that'd be a nice acquisition here, especially as a nice succession plan to build yourself a, uh, safety net. If the TANF thing didn't work out. And, you know, we talked a lot about Dylan DeMello at that time in, uh, 2020 and then everything shuts down and here we are now, but, uh, a player just steady, next to uh, someone who's thriving right now and Josh Morrissey. We'll uh, get another look at the Winnipeg Jets tomorrow, 5 o'clock puck drop. Uh, again, you'll have the pregame show here on Sportsnet 650 with Satyar Shaw and Dan Riccio at 4 o'clock uh, pregame roundtable with Batch and Randeep who have the call at 5 o'clock tomorrow. I'll uh, we'll get into more uh, on the other side, uh, a little bit more hockey talk as well, but also briefly touch on it with Danny. Uh, we saw a benching now in the NFL. Derek Carr. QB of the Vegas Raiders. He's going to the bench. His season's pretty much over, uh, and his Raiders career might be over as well. Uh, What's a good landing spot for him? Uh, Look ahead as well to the Seahawks and Jets. People's picks on the way. Plus, we'll talk about the Canucks and Jets tomorrow. All coming up here on the home of the Canucks, Sportsnet 650. Welcome back to the show. Vic Nazar, Israel Fair, coming to you live from the Kintech studio. It's the People's Show, 650-650. If you want to be part of it as well, I'll get to your interaction uh, throughout the course of the show. Uh, good chat there with Sean Reynolds. If you missed it, you can grab it on the podcast, uh, the People Show podcast feed, Spotify, Apple, Google, wherever you're grabbing your pods, as well as Canuck Central, Halford & Bruff, PDOcast, Canucks Talk, any number of pods. Uh, subscribe. Always appreciate it. Five-star reviews only as well. Write whatever you want, but uh, hit that five-star. can deal with the constructive uh, constructive criticism, uh, but just hit five stars. Thanks in advance for that. Uh, looking forward to the game tomorrow. We'll get into that in just a little bit, but I did want to get to uh, some big news in the NFL. Derek Carr 
Raiders quarterback, benched for the final two games. They will go with Jarrett Stidham. Uh, we talked about the fantasy impact of that with Danny Kelly earlier, so you can grab that uh, as well on the podcast. But a star quarterback with two games remaining in the NFL uh, getting benched. And also – He's going home. He's going home. Like, they don't even want him he's in the facility. He's on the bench, yeah. Just enjoy – going to Fresno. The early offseason. <laughs> yeah, it's home. Uh, or his college. That's what, yeah. He, he might uh, make I think he's a California. Yeah. Because uh, his brother also went there. Yeah. So, this season's over. Now, this is about setting up a move and, from the Raiders' point of view, protecting an asset from getting hurt and not being on the hook for guaranteed money in 2023. But this is all intense purposes, ending his uh, Raiders' tenure. They'll try to find a spot for him, I imagine, in the offseason or just outright release. But quarterbacks always have enough demand that uh, a trade is probably most likely. Man, it's a cold world, too, because they they technically are not eliminated from the playoffs. <laughs> technically. Yeah. The amount of things that have to happen for them to get in is very unrealistic. So I can understand why this is the move right now. But this is not a scenario of like, oh, we have a young quarterback. We're just trying to give a chance. Like Jared Stidham's had starts in this league. He's not very good. This is strictly, we're going to trade you in the offseason. So let's take a look uh, across the league because we are kind of in a stretch here where quarterback plans are shifting across the league that a bunch of teams do need some quarterbacks. There's a few that I'm going to make a pitch for, but the one that stands out immediately, I imagine, is the same one you're going to say. There's, there's one team where just do this, you guys need a quarterback, someone that's responsible, and maybe there's untapped upside to both Derek Carr and this team. And J-E-T-S, Jets, Jets, Jets. It's not even close, right? Like I, I can make a good pitch for a lot of teams here, but there is not a team that you look at and says, the more than the New York Jets, that just need responsible play. And I've had my critiques about yeah, Derek Carr. Is, is he a responsible quarterback? More so than Zach Wilson. I mean, Zach Wilson, that's the bottom of the barrel. But that's what we're saying. Like, if they can get a Kirk Cousins-like shelf, don't we look and at the— they were one of the teams in on Kirk Cousins yeah. back in the day. If they can just get that, don't we look at the Jets a bit differently? Because the Jets right now have all this talent, and offensively, when Zach Wilson's the guy, it is super chaotic. You don't know what you're going to get down to down, let alone— drive to drive, quarter to quarter, game to game. You just don't know what you're going to get. Mike White is viewed as borderline messiah just because it's, <laughs> hey, like you don't look awful. Derek Carr is, brings a certain level of professionalism, certain level of responsibility, reliability. I, again, I have my critiques, but from where you're coming from, from Zach Wilson to Derek Carr, that's a big leap. And this is a team that's picking up wins right now because there is talent on this team. Defense looks f- phenomenal. They got stud corners. Quinton Williams is taking a step this year. I- is there even a second team we need to look at? Or if you're the Jets, do you look at this and say, okay, what's the QB landscape going to look like? Jimmy Garoppolo mm-hmm. is going to be out there. That's another you know, look baseline of competency. And... Throw in uh, Derek Carr now in the mix. What makes the most sense for the Jets? Because Garoppolo could be a free agent. I, I think Carr makes tons of sense. So, um, I don't know. He's had such a strange career because he, I guess, came in second-round pick, 
the Raiders have some success, but he had they had that big season, a 12 win season, 13 win season. I guess he was the starter for that most of that year was I think third place in MVP. Mm-hmm. And since then, it's been a lot of stop starts. Um, but like, yeah, he 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 has a he has a baseline. He has a baseline that's pretty good, and I think that there are. He, he is in that kind of divisive camp mm-hmm. where there are there are people that think that he has the talent, the potential to be better. Um, from what I saw from the Raiders this year, their coaching and their head coach specifically did him no favors. I, I thought Josh, I thought Josh McDaniels had an absolutely horrific season mm-hmm. as a head coach. Even the game against the Seahawks, where they won, he played so scared. Yeah, there were so many moments where you think like, this is not winning coaching from the Raiders. Okay, I'll go through a bunch but of But also here. on the Jets, I'll say that uh, I think the Jets are just poisoned. So, like, they have – yes, the defense looks really good. Yeah. They've made strides. Uh, they've revamped their coaching staff, and the, the, there's a belief there. There's maybe a culture building, but they're still the Jets. It's tough, right? Like, they do strike me as maybe this was one year. Like, the year-to-year sustainability of defense in the NFL – very hard to replicate. That's why something like the Legion of Boom, Seattle, yeah, was it's like four four years. It's such an outlier. Best defense in the league. It's such an outlier, and you, you need so much year to year continuity, and it's 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 tough to live up to in salary cap world and everything, and especially how money gets spread around offensively relative to v, to defense. But I'll throw a bunch of teams out to, out to you. If it makes more sense for this team to go after Derek Carr over the New York Jets, but let's start high end Miami Dolphins. Right, like they shopped for a quarterback over um, Tua. Would they be a more a more attractive destination than the New York Jets for Derek Carr? If it's his choice, yeah. Uh, well, you obviously love this the talent, the skill talent there. I could see him actually rather going to the Jets. I kind of think so, too. Because it just strikes me, based on what we've heard, uh, he hasn't verbalized it a ton. His brother, uh, (laughs) David Carr, on Twitter has a lot. Basically being like, this guy needs to be the man somewhere. Mm -hmm. Let him him go. You know, basically, maybe not quite the Russell Wilson treatment in Denver, but something close to that. And if the Jets are in this position where they tend to be, because they're the Jets, they're very desperate, they would open up their arms to to a player like, like Carr and... Not give him the the keys necessarily, but put him in a position to to succeed. Whereas in I think what we've seen from the Dolphins this year, the highs have been really high. But there's you know, he's he's leaving a he's gonna be leaving a chaotic situation. Mm-hmm. And in this in this case, the Dolphins are certainly mired in, in chaos, even though the highs have been probably higher than what the Jets have done this year. At least the Jets and I I've I've just been ripping them, but there is a it seems a little bit more stable. The Washington Commanders. This is an interesting one to me that I could see them trying to be a bit more aggressive, trying to acquire Derek Carr. Now, they're also in the um, playoff mix, and their QB situation is very unstable. They're going back to Carson Wentz now. Yeah. I don't know if, if that's something that they're looking at long term, even. That's an interesting that could compete with the New York Jets as far as acquiring a uh, a quarterback as well. Yeah, sure. And then uh, a team that we just saw, the Colts. <laughs> Obviously, they're they're going to yeah. be looking for a quarterback again. Um, but I mean, Lamar Jackson. The Lamar Jackson situation is one that's kind of hanging prob- over. Everything. That's probably the big domino. Yeah, 
We'll get into some of that later as well, uh, but let's uh, talk to our guy, Ian McIntyre, who joins us now uh, after a big win for the Vancouver Canucks last night, 6-2, but Ian McIntyre making a a quick appearance here on the People Show. I'm Mac. How are you? I'm doing well. They get to uh, enjoy their short winning streak. It somehow feels longer because it was interrupted by by Christmas and Boxing Day, but yeah, it it was impressive that they came back. Uh, after the layoff and, and actually won a game wire to wire. And, of course, it was a game that they, they should have won, given the opponent and that San Jose had to travel. But it was all, all the more reason I thought, well, this would be one that they would probably trip up and fall over because the Canucks this season, whenever you think they got something going, they take a step back. But they kept going forward, so we'll see how they do on this road trip. Yeah, you know, what do you take from this three-game winning streak that you build upon moving forward into the very tough stretch of their schedule uh, now heading into uh, this Winnipeg to all the way through to mid-January? Well, first of all, it, it's almost like a two-game winning streak plus the Ilias Pettersson game because there's no way they beat Seattle if Pettersson didn't have that epic night. But the last two games, I think there's actually a lot of positive things to take away. You know, the last 40 minutes in Edmonton, they were very good defensively. They maybe made Martin do more than he had to last night against San Jose, but they still only gave up 25 shots. So I'd say, number one, their team defending looks a a lot tighter than it has at times. I think it's positive that these last two wins were by each of the goalies they have. Delia was really good. And then Martin had one of his best games in a long time when he came back after a little reset and then of course you have the 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 individual (laughs) scoring achievements where nightly somebody's getting five or four points in the last last two games it was Bo Horvat but last night Mikheyev as well so it kind of shows you and and I've thought this for a while and I'm not making any crazy predictions because if nothing else this team seems wholly unpredictable but they have so much uh, offensive talent that if they could just get some of the other areas of their game in order, they could win a whole lot of games. Uh, I'm not confident that they've got everything in order, but they certainly have that potential. You know, in golfers' terms, they have that potential to go low, and sometimes we see a, a, a 63 from them, and then a lot of other times we see a 78, but at least they have the ability to go, go low. You mentioned Mikheyev with uh, the big points night, and it seems like maybe he's flown a little bit under the radar. He had the injury. The team hasn't been super successful. Of, of the off-season additions, Kuzmenko's been maybe a little bit flashy too because he's he's just great fodder for the highlight reel. But I, I have to imagine the Canucks are pretty happy with what they've gotten from Mikheyev. Even He's, he's not going to get four-point nights all the time, but just what he's brought to, to this group. Yeah, I, I, I think they're probably elated and I, I suspect he as well even though he'd he'd like the team to have more wins I mean this has been everything that he hoped for I mean he, he came to Vancouver and obviously they're giving him a lot of money almost five million a year but he came to Vancouver for the opportunity to play in the top six for the opportunity to get on the power play things that he felt there was a ceiling put on him in Toronto where he was regarded as this you know, really good penalty killer and a defensive player, a guy who brought speed and energy, but wasn't counted on and wasn't given much opportunity to play in a scoring role. And here he is, uh, you know, he's played uh, off and on with Pedersen, but he's always played with top centers and has added this offensive side to his game, which he thought he had, and maybe the Canucks thought he had as well. 
but at the same time, he I think he still delivered on on the things that they were hoping for in terms of the conscientious 200 foot game, the ability to to play in key situations late in the game to help the penalty killing. I know the penalty killing is, is has been awful, but I can almost guarantee it would be even worse without without Mikheyev. So uh, I think he's uh, in some ways I think he's over delivered, and and yet. You know, there you can see when he plays. There, there's more there as well. I don't think he's. I don't think he's had the speed that he had in Toronto uh, every night, and maybe that's a result of that uh, mystery injury he he started the season with. But I think he's been very good. And and you're right, is he? You know, Kuzmenko's been been really good as well. Like those were two free agents that they hit on, and now they know that they've got Mikheyev for the next four years. Now they got to find a way to make sure that they don't lose Kizmenko after one season. It's interesting because you know the, this management group has kind of come a little under fire that some of the decisions haven't happened as quickly as people wanted, and yet you look at their the transactions. It's really outside of Riley Stillman, all of them have kind of been fantastic value, including Mikheyev. Yeah, I mean, look at the Ethan Bear trade, and and Ethan Bear has been good for them. I I, I don't know what honestly you know Bruce. Boudreaux was thinking when he did sit him out uh, the one game, I think it was the Seattle game, because I think he's been pretty steady and been, if not their second best defenseman, certainly among their top four defensemen since he got here. And now on top of him, you have as a bonus, uh, Lane Peterson, you know, catching lightning in a bottle and, and, and finally getting a chance to play in the NHL with really good players and and he's doing well. So, yeah, and, you know, Lazar has been, I think, a little bit disappointing. Well, he's been disappointing from a production standpoint. But in terms of bringing grit and energy and some, some leadership and guile to the group, I think he's been what they hoped for in that regard. But they just he needs to have a little bit, bit better bottom line, or at least a bottom line. And then uh, Dakota Joshua, who kind of was an afterthought for for most of us on free agent day back in July has kind of been a steady fourth line player and has delivered what you would hope from a fourth line player. He's been physical. He's been consistent. He hasn't particularly hurt them with either penalties or, or shoddy defensive play. He seems like a guy that Boudreaux can trust on his fourth line and he's chipped in a few goals as well. So, and you know, and then Spencer Martin who, I think would like to have a higher save percentage. In fact, I know he he would, but we know that also that he's faced a lot of high quality chances. And all he's done is Boudreaux keeps pointing out his win games for this team. And, you know, where would they be without him winning games with the start that Thatcher Demko had before he got hurt? So, yeah, on an individual basis, you know, they've pretty much hit on all these things. I think, you know, the big question is, their prioritization uh, in the off season of Miller and the contract they gave Miller and mm-hmm. what that now means for Bo Horvat. I mean, that's, that's the big criticism and I don't blame them at the time. You know, Miller was a 99 point player. He's got a better track record. He's got a, you know, more impact in offensively than Bo Horvat has had before this season. Mm-hmm. And, he was the player that I think most people figured would be more inclined to want to leave as a free agent if he didn't get a contract that he liked in Vancouver, whereas Horvat was the guy who's Mr. Canuck and the team captain 
But maybe that's a mistake the management made, the same one that maybe I would have made, that I'd have been a little complacent, thinking that, yeah, of course we're going to get Bo Horvat signed. But when they signed Miller first, it made it more difficult. It put some restrictions, obviously, on what they could then afford to pay Bo Horvat. And what nobody foresaw was that Horvat, after having a career season last year with 31 goals, would suddenly turn into Pavel Burry 2.0 and be on pace for, <laughs> for 50. And for a while, he was on pace for 60. Nobody foresaw that. And that has really complicated things as well. Because now, you know, the Canucks weren't willing to match what what Horvat wanted, what he thought his value was, and his agent, Pat Morris, thought his value was when the season began. Well, his value is even higher now. So that, that's a situation that will be second-guessed, uh, especially if the team actually gets around to trading Bo Horvat, which would be, by the way, the biggest in-season trade since Pavel Burry in 99. And, and, and Burry finally held out to, to force a trade because he'd wanted out for years. You know, Bo Horvat doesn't want out. I think he'd like to stay here, although, you know, it's hard to say how he feels about how all the, how, how all of this has been handled. He certainly hasn't complained publicly about it Mm -hmm. but it's it's a difficult situation and in in the end you know that transaction is probably going to be regime defining but they've got a lot of other good things going for them we opened the show with with the Horvat question that he's got 26 goals now in 34 games we don't know if he'll finish the season in Vancouver but we we had some fun with debating whether or not he'll hit 50 uh what's what's your gut on if he he can be a 50 goal guy and there's about six guys at the moment who are on pace to do it so it's we know offense is up in the league yeah well I think it was when I was really little I think Ron Settlebauer had like 26 goals halfway through the year and and finished with under 40 and uh there were lots of seasons tony tanti who was a, a legit goal scorer and one of the the underrated players in connects history in the 80s um you know looked on pace like maybe he challenged 50 he, he never did it's really hard to maintain and we've already seen you know when you have a great first half i mean it's hard to maintain that for the second half and we've got more than halfway to go. I I would also point out that Horvat leads the league in deflection goals, which are coin tosses. I mean, it takes a lot of skill to deflect the puck, but it can, you know, it bounces in or it bounces off the goalie. I think maybe Kizmenko, the, the league says he has one more, but his aren't deflections. His are just redirects and tap-ins goal side from the power play plays that he's, he's benefited from. So there has been an element of luck to what Bo Horvat has done, but we see that we've seen his shot for for years. We've seen how he, you know, the power that he has in his game, the ability that he has to get to the net, and that he's kind of a, a shoot first guy. He's he's a scorer more than a playmaker. So it wouldn't surprise me if if he gets fifty, and I think he would almost have to stumble now not to get it. But it's such an incredible threshold, especially for guys who have never done it. And then especially, again, for guys who haven't been close. And Bo Horvat hasn't been close. I think it's going to be tough for him to maintain. But it wouldn't surprise me at all if he does it. He's certainly going to soar past 40. And then it'll be a question of how how close does he come for 50. And in Vancouver, the question will be for which team? Because chances are if he does have a chance to 
to get 50 goals. Right now, it looks like it's going to be for somebody else after the trade deadline. The Ron Settlebauer uh, reference catches at plus 4,000 today. So thank you very much for that one, uh, <laughs> iMac. <laughs> You're welcome. And I, I honestly, I can't even remember how old I was. I was very little, but I do remember had an incredible first half and no Canuck. You know, this was uh, pre-Long, pre-Bure, pre-Linden. Mm-hmm. Um, I, you know, I think Sundstrom and, of course, Smeal and Gradeen arrived in the late 70s. When, by the way, I was also a little kid. But uh, I just remember Ron Salbar and think, man, could a Vancouver Canuck score 50 goals at Canuck? Well, it turned out not then, but eventually somebody did. Uh, appreciate it. Uh, take care. We'll talk to you uh, tomorrow. See you guys. Nice being on the show, and I will talk to you very late tomorrow night, Vic. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks, I'm back. It's Ian McIntyre joining us, a presentation of Grip Auto and Tire uh, on Sportsnet 650, quality service you can trust in 14 locations to serve you. He mentioned the name Burray, and I know some people are like, oh, come on, Pavel Burray. If Bo Horvat scores two goals next game, mm-hmm. I just want to point this out. Like These are the numbers we were talking about yesterday, or in the first segment of the show, chasing 50. If Bo Horvat scores two goals next game, which, by the way, he's done plenty so far this season. Burray's best season, goals per game, was .79. If Bo scores two tomorrow, it puts him at .8. Wow. So it's, it's not even that far of a – and, like, you kind of giggled. And you're like, ha-ha, Burray. It's right on track with that. That's what we're talking about as far as uh, the type of season – He's having goal scoring. The uh, I got the the Ron Settlebauer stats up here, Bick. Yep. So he scored 40 goals in the year that uh, iMac was talking about, 78-79. This is what tripped me up. He scored 40 goals, 16 assists for 56 points. He was a minus 34. Let's go. <laughs> he scored 40 goals and he was a minus 34. Let's go. Love <laughs> 70s hockey, baby. Uh, all right, we got a lot to get into on the other side as well. People's picks as well. We'll do some guess the lines uh, for week 17. Uh, it's on the way here on the home of the Canucks, Sportsnet 650.